Hello and welcome to this new episode of The Graft, this time with Dr. Toby Ira, who is a consultant hematologist and clinical researcher at the Oxford University Hospitals, specializing in the management of lymphoid malignancies. He is an international expert in the management of lymphoma patients and patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. We talk about CLL, its past, present, and future, about his career, and about training and the COVID pandemic in general. And now, enjoy the conversation with Dr. Toby Ira. Funny first question, maybe. Um, do you remember your first patient with CLL? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, no, no, I don't. Um, no. Um, but I, you know, uh, I think from my early training days, you kind of tend to remember, you tend to remember people who kind of really stick out. Um, actually, I did my first part of hematology on a bone marrow transplant ward. Um, so I kind of remember the inpatients from there. And obviously, the, most of those weren't CLL patients. Um, mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say I specifically remember my first one, but I certainly remember some some interesting hematology patients going mm -hmm. back to the to the start. <laughs> and um, why did you choose hematology? Um, I, I chose it because... Um, it was a great mix of interesting science, biology, new treatments, and um, kind of uh, patient contact, which felt very individual and personal. So I felt that you had the kind of level of patient relationships that people get in, say, primary care, for example, with their general practitioners, but also you had the kind of interesting science and research to go kind of alongside that. And I think that's fairly unique, actually, in haematology. I think um, uh, we're very uh, fortunate to have that combination of, um, of, of factors in our specialty. And um, would you outline maybe a bit your whole career, maybe from why did you choose medical school and how you proceeded onward from that? <laughs> yeah, okay. So... Um, so I uh, went, decided to go into medicine kind of mostly by, by chance, I suppose. My, my father was a, uh, is now a retired general practitioner. And I suppose, I suppose subconsciously, I thought clearly doing medicine was a, a kind of interesting thing to do because we used to kind of talk a bit about what he used to do and so forth. And I had a lot of respect for him. Um, And then, uh, so, so, so you know what it's like, you kind of decide at the age of 16 that the medicine might be a good idea without having any sort of clue really what's involved. I did a little bit of kind of a taste a week. I nearly fainted watching a hemicolectomy, I remember <laughs> when I was 16. And then, and then, you know, applied for medical school, got, 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 got a place and kind of went from there really. So um, in terms of kind of my time as an undergraduate, I, you know, I wouldn't say I did anything kind of dramatic or different to, to, to other people. It wasn't really until I qualified and was in my uh, second year as a, as a kind of junior um, house officer, they're called in the UK, a more resident, I suppose, in the US, where um, I met a hematologist who, um, who kind of took some time to kind of talk to me about his specialty, actually. And I did a bit of time out of my training just shadowing him him and the hematology department I was I was with for a short period of time and really sort of fell in love with it I, I really enjoyed the pathology aspect of undergraduate medicine but it was it was really kind of in that in that second year post qualifying that I really decided what that was what I wanted to do and then actually I suppose that's still relatively early on in terms of a career to know oh, I definitely want to be a hematologist so that was really helpful for me because then I could sort of focus my interest and so forth um, and came to Oxford to do my registrar training did three years um, research uh, in early phase clinical trials so it's a kind of mostly clinical based research um, attachment that I did out of program and then got a consultant post here and uh, now lead the CLL service and um, and uh, the low-grade lymphoma service and have a great interest in both education but also clinical research and clinical trials particularly so combination of things so yeah lots of 
lots of kind of things sort of fell into place along the way but um I'd say it was from really quite an early stage I thought haematology would be great I didn't know that I definitely wanted to do lymphoma and CLL I think the reasons for doing that are predominantly because of the sort of the people I met along the way and who I was, I was inspired by and what I what I kind of felt was a really nice area to get involved in so um yeah that's that's sort of my path to date I suppose And um, you all already hinted to that, but maybe uh, if you if you can uh, outline that a bit more or, or, or fix that, uh, when you look in retrospect and you, you said um, there were like people who influenced you, but what, was it basically their, like their character, how they approached the hematology um, um, or what was it just really how they presented the content or what, what was it? I I suppose it's a combination of factors. I wouldn't say it's one thing in isolation. Mm -hmm. I suppose, um, and the thing is, is everybody will do get, get different experiences from characters in their own unit, but um, certainly the kind of enthusiasm for clinical research within the lymphoma and CLL team, I was always kind of very inspired by as I came through. Also the, the desire for for, for individuals and, and people more senior to me to see me develop and see me um, see me succeed in, in, in different aspects of my my training and then kind of after that subsequently I think is is really helpful everybody needs sort of supportive supportive mentors and um, uh, and and I suppose that's what I had within the lymph lymphoma service and, and lymphoid service and so that to my mind was was always really important as a trainee going through um uh, yeah you, i th i think it's vital that anybody gets support from people who are sort of more senior than them and kind of is that is their voice and their you know their kind of to support them through their training so yeah that, that that's mm -hmm. probably it's a combination of factors i think i think i saw in lymphoma and CLL, I saw this real, real shift in what was happening mm. um, probably about, you know, 10, eight, 10 years ago, we had the advent of things like PD-1, brentuximab, um, BTK inhibitors, then BCL-2 inhibitors came along. And all these therapies really, you know, if you look at them from a kind of timeline perspective, they've really come in the last, you know, eight to 10 years. And I suppose that, that came through as I was training. And whilst lots has happened in myeloid disease and other areas, I like, I think, I think my personal bias <laughs> certainly is that the lymphoid, um, you know, the changes we've seen in lymphoid malignancy have just been extraordinary in such a short period of time. Um, and it's just been fantastic to be kind of in and amongst that. Um, when I was a trainee and a fellow um, doing my research program, we had, You know, for example, the nivolumab study opened, the phase two opened, we recruited well in, in, in Oxford and I got to use kind of sort of PD-1 inhibitors before anybody else in the UK, in, in, in Hodgkin's at least. And then we had the Veneticlax phase one and two, well, it's phase two studies open. So we had early experience of Veneticlax as well, um, early experience of acalabrutinib and so forth. So um, I kind of really enjoyed that aspect of being sort of at the at the forefront of actually at least the clinical kind of trial development and still do actually you know we've I, I've I've treated a lot of patients with um pertubrutinib loxo 305 recently and it's been fascinating and fantastic to be sort of at the forefront of some of that drugs mm -hmm. development so yeah they're, they're the aspects of kind of of clinical research I really like as well um, so I think that's probably overall, I think that's inspired me in, in, in this field, particularly mm -hmm. as well. We, we will come hopefully through, um, to, to all these aspects you just mentioned, um, with respect to CLL, but maybe just two questions before that. Um, one question and the first one, because you said you started quite early, you were quite young. Um, and when you're quite young you sometimes uh, feel have moments where you just say okay uh do you do, do i really want that or is, is yeah, that yeah. is that what was there a moment you you thought okay i don't know is it is it worth it uh <laughs> De definitely definitely yeah. 
Um, and obviously there are many paths people can take in, in hematology, um, both malignant hematology, non-malignant research centers, you know, big, big kind of big tertiary centers or smaller district general hospitals. And I think, you know, the workload, the demands, um, the kind of the impact on your day-to-day -day life is different in those different fields. And, um, you know, each are, each are of course valuable uh, in their own right. Um, but I think there are different pressures um, and yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you have to be honest with yourself about what sort of gets you out of bed in the morning and um, what you really enjoy. And that will be different for everybody. And I think, I think, you know, people need to certainly respect each other's decisions when you're deciding, oh yeah, I, I want to, you know, work in whatever center, I want to do this. I don't want to focus on research, I do, I, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I think it's difficult because I think, you know, what you might want when you're say in your mid twenties might not be what you want when you're 40 as well. It's quite hard to kind of think too far ahead as well. Um, but no, I've not, I've not kind of regretted so far <laughs> my, my decisions. Um, but I, but I do think it's quite, quite difficult. And for sure, there've been times during my training where I thought, I thought, oh, am I good enough to do kind of research? You know, will I, will I, be able to kind of sort of come up with new ideas and develop research projects and proposals and publish, you know, all this kind of stuff goes through your head because, you know, in, in some respects, unless you've been, you know, very inspired and published loads when you were either an undergraduate or very early on in your career, you might not actually have a really good feel for whether it's something you're either good at or have the energy, motivation and sort of desire to do, I suppose. Um, and that's quite difficult, actually, because you sort of have to be really honest with yourself about what you think you'll be good at and what you think you might not be good at. And actually, I suppose I did that in terms of my decisions around um, around my research time in that I didn't I did a little bit of laboratory work, but I didn't do very much. And that was, I suppose, me being sort of really honest with myself in that I didn't really see myself leading a, a lab per se. Um, and and I, I think I had to be really clear with myself in my mind at that point that that was something that whilst whilst obviously a lot of the laboratory research is really critical, I didn't really see that potentially as my own personal sort of strength. Um, and actually that's been okay so far in, in many respects. Um, it means obviously you need to work with people and work with the right people and so forth. But I think I think you're right. I think you're right. You kind of sort of have to be really honest with yourself and um, and think about what your own strengths are. Think about um, uh, you know and and think about what you actually want as well. It's it's not easy. I I I don't think I don't think if you spoke to anybody they'd they'd necessarily say that they were absolutely certain um, during during the initial phases of their career exactly what they wanted to do. I, I was just fairly lucky that I knew I wanted to do haematology and it was pretty clear to me from quite an early stage. I think that was fortunate. But yeah, within the decisions around research or not, lab or not, clinical research, et cetera, that was less clear for, for at least a period of time. Um, but yeah. I, yeah I, you, you perfectly outlined the, my, the response for my second question, because you you early you were early involved with clinical research, and uh, for for many trainees, that is exactly the question you answer yourself early in career. Okay, do I want to do research or just clinic? And if I want to do research, how do I like integrate this in my uh, workload, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. But you you perfectly out outlined that, um, and this is like was basically a no-brainer for you as i understood it this was just like okay yeah i wanted to research and how do i integrate it that was more the question right yeah I, I think i always i always thought i'd want research to be a part of my job but i don't think i ever thought oh i'd necessarily have to be a full-time mm. researcher or anything like that and i'm i'm still definitely not that um and in fact, you know, it's quite challenging working in the NHS actually just um, 
finding finding the time to do research actually the, the the kind of clinical jobs that are available in the nhs actually don't don't particularly lend themselves very well to actually integrating a lot of clinical research into you know job plans and so forth so yeah um but yeah i think i i, I think i always had a sort of inquisitive mind and always liked the kind of new stuff that was coming through and you know when there was like a phase one study published i'd be like oh what's this drug this looks quite interesting mm. what do how does it work you know this kind of stuff so so i i i suppose i was inquisitive enough i think you have to be inquisitive and you have to like the idea of thinking up a project an idea and running with it and kind of galvanizing people around you to to kind of make it work and you've also got to be a kind of complete a finisher as well you've got to be somebody who like has an idea and finishes that idea because mm. i think that's a really important thing when you're you know actually trying to be productive and so forth when you're doing clinical research so yeah i think it's a lot of factors um that are important but i think overall you've got to sort of you've got to know that you want to do it basically mm. um i think if you're lukewarm about it and you're like well i'm not sure yeah it's quite interesting but maybe it's not for me I think then it's probably not for you because you've often got to, I've got to, you know, I have to put in quite a lot of my own time into it and, you know, work late when the kids are in bed, et cetera, that kind of thing. So, you know, it's, there are, there are, there are quite a few sacrifices that kind of come with it. Um, so you've got to want to do it because if you don't want to do it, there's no, you know, you're not going to. Well, and, and when we come now to, to CLL, if you, if we are today and um, a patient with CLL presents to you, um, How, how do you approach this patient? And um, when you compare that, you, you already alluded to it, but maybe uh, you, you can try to elaborate it on it a bit more. When you compare the past and the present you experienced, what, are, what changed the most for these patients? If you compare a patient now from a patient yeah. uh, 10 years ago, for instance. Well, I mean, I think, I think it's fair to say there's been a revolution in therapy in CLL. Um, I think that would be, there'd be no exaggeration. Um, Uh, there you know if you go back uh, if you go back kind of pre-abrutinib we we had no kind of targeted targeted um, agents particularly in CLL and in the last kind of 10 years we've had abrutinib, acalabrutinib, um, the PI3 kinase inhibitors, xanabrutinib's coming, um, novel CD20 antibodies so obviously we had rituximab going back further but you know, abinutuzumab, clearly a more effective CD20 antibody, BCL2 inhibitors more recently, clearly changing the, the treatment paradigm further. And now we're going to enter the non-covalent BTK inhibitor era too. So we've had, just just when you think there isn't another kind of trick up our sleeve, we've got another, another novel agent that seems to work very nicely in CLL as well. Um, and so, you know, we've clearly undergone transformation in a very short period of time. So, yeah, if I think back in kind of, you know, to think back to, say, 2008, we were giving lots of people FCR. We were giving people um, bendamustin, rituximab, a, a fair amount. Um, we uh, were giving chlorambicil with rituximab, um, you know, so, so our chemo in the frontline setting. And then people were doing things like allogeneic transplant um, in so-called high-risk disease, Um You know, and that was generally defined by your length of remission to FCR back kind of going back now 10 years. So if you had a P53 deletion mutation or you had a short remission to FCR, allo was being considered fairly, fairly early in the treatment pathway. Um, and, you know, similarly, chemotherapy was used after frontline chemotherapy. So you would use chemotherapy with an antibody at relapse as well. Now, of course, you know, lots of centers had clinical trials open. And so we were starting to see early signs of some of these newer agents coming through. Um, but, you know, in, in all honesty, you had, um, you had our, our chemo, then um, the only novel agents, so-called novel agents at that kind of early stage were drugs like ofatunumab, which was used in people as monotherapy and people who are kind of quite heavily pre-treated and alamtuzumab was actually used um a fair bit in in patients who had p53 deletion or um, were refractory to chemotherapy and that was often used as a kind of bridge to allogeneic transplant so you can see how far we've come so i remember giving 
what you know monitoring people for cmv with alan tuzema back on back on our day treatment unit trying to bridge them to allogeneic transplant in a kind of pre you know pre-targeted inhibitor era um but yeah we were lucky in oxford as well because we had quite a lot of the early studies with pi3 kinase inhibitors with btk inhibitors and then with bcl2 inhibitors so we we had a bit of a sort of glimpse as to what they were doing clinically um, and that certainly, so, so, so I suppose early on, whenever these kind of studies were open, there was certainly a desire to enroll people into these studies because I think it became clear relatively quickly that these agents were going to be pretty game changing. And um, you talk about like treatments, but is there, all, I, I imagine, always like a intertwined relationship of understanding the, the, the disease better than we did like 10, 15 years ago, and then uh, try to develop treatment. So what, 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 what would you say changed the most when in understanding the disease and, and maybe even patient selection, for instance, or could you allude on that a bit more? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good, good question there, because of course we've kind of developed greater understanding of the disease, and but we've, we've kind of known for quite a long time the B-cell receptor pathway and the BCL2 Kind of anti-apoptotic pathway have both been kind of important, um, but I suppose if you take the B cell receptor pathway, you know we've tried a number of inhibitors of that pathway for a long time, and we just happened to strike gold with BTK in many respects. So, so the biology yes has been important, but you know we tried sick inhibitors, PI3 kinase inhibitors, we tried to target mTOR. Um, uh, you know, various um, a, a, AKT inhibitors. So there have been all, all parts of the pathway which have been looked at and targeted. But BTK, um, actually, not necessarily because people thought it was biologically more important to target than, say, sick. Um, but, it, you know, we just sort of... <laughs> sort of struck gold there, I think. I mean, maybe that's a base, maybe that's too simplistic our understanding of it. Um, but 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 sometimes actually, sometimes actually the the the, the clinical behavior of responses to treatment tell you tell you as much, if not more, about the importance of a pathway than necessarily the other way round, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? And then I think think BCL two is it was just a what what once once BCL two inhibitors started to be used and the efficacy was seen with you know the early BCL two inhibitors, it just became apparent that you needed a you know you needed a BCL two inhibitor that wasn't going to cause issues with thrombocytopenia and that you had to use it very carefully. And then I think it became apparent that it was highly effective. But it's interesting, isn't it? You know, BCL2 inhibitors, you know, you think would be extremely effective in follicular lymphoma, they're, they're not. Um, you know, the biology of the disease would tell you they should be really good. That should be the disease entity that actually they get, they changed the game in. They haven't. Um, it's interesting that, isn't it? So it's not, you know, so sometimes, sometimes the, not always, but sometimes the kind of cl clinical features of how the diseases respond to these agents sort of trump what we think should happen biologically, um, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, uh, and shows actually, you know, how much we, we still have to understand. But so I think it's a bit of both. I think it's a bit of both. Um, but, but at the end of the day, the drugs have to work. They have to be tolerable. They have to have a biological, broad biological rationale. And, and then I suppose you go from there, really. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, re I really like what, what you say, because uh, as a trainee, CLL always was, for me, a quite clinical disease. It was, uh, it was exactly um, what, what you just said. And um, I'm, early this week, I, I made, uh, for, for me, I made the experience that I thought about um, BTK inhibitors, like the NOACs um, in cardiology, where you now have many of them, and each of them is more like specialized with less adverse events etc so this is really a, a clinical game changer where we just have a target and we uh yeah perfect the adverse event ratio um the, the efficacy etc so would you maybe outline a bit what you you already mentioned ibrutinib was the first one but uh, now there are um like 
Acalabrutinib, Sanabrutinib, Pitabrutinib. What, what, what are the big differences between the new uh, developments and what was the rationale? Yeah, it's a great question. So I thought it's interesting, you know, when, when Ibrutinib came along, it was such a game changing drug. People thought, oh, so, sort of kind of, you know, subconsciously, I think, thought, oh, well, CLL sort of now sorted. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, that hasn't quite been the case. And I suppose uh, it's been very it's been very interesting just to observe that there has actually been space in the market to develop, you know, second, third generations of these agents. Um, yeah, ibrutinib is, you know, a highly effective drug. It's changed the field in CLL dramatically, but it is not a highly specific and selective BTK inhibitor. There's obviously lots of off-target um, kinase inhibition, and that leads to quite a number of the toxicities that we have sort of been been um, been observing in our clinic and understand gradually understanding better. So obviously GI toxicity, um, bruising, bleeding, arthralgia, myalgia, cardiac side effects, etc. So um, so I think you know there was I think it became evident over time that there was space to develop something more targeted, more specific. And I suppose that's where acalabrutinib and zanabrutinib just about in parallel, acalabrutinib a bit further along the treatment pathway, but but, but, but both are obviously covalent BTK inhibitors, so they so they inhibit um, they inhibit um, BTK signaling in, in, in exactly the same way as as ibrutinib does. So no real reason to think that they would be more efficacious, particularly. Um, and actually, that's certainly what we've seen really up until now, at least with acalabrutinib in terms of the Elevate Relapse Refractory study and so forth. But the toxicity profile for, for both agents. Um, is better. I, I think we have enough evidence to to suggest that both both in CLL studies so far, the the zanabrutinib study is not quite as mature as the acalabrutinib study um, has been. But you know we've seen pretty much pretty much better safety profile across across the board in terms of all those toxicities I just outlined. Um, and so covalent BTK inhibitors, the management uh, will depending of course on availability and cost and all the all of those other factors which are all of course important in terms of what you can use in your clinic but i think if you had a choice now certainly people would plump for a second generation btk inhibitor because of the toxicity profile um and so we have seen this big big shift towards the use of a and obviously a calibration has got a frontline and relapsed license at the moment and certainly in my clinic at the moment um i don't use any abrutinib now i only use a calibration when i use a covalent BTK inhibitor. So it's just been interesting how, how kind of quickly that's shifted. And, and actually, if you do create a safer drug, even if it's equally effective, overnight, it can take the place of the less safe drug because nobody wants a more toxic drug in their clinic. So that's kind of, it's kind of an interesting um, phenomenon, actually, which is quite a relatively new to, to hematology that you can, you can, inhibit the same target, have a safer drug, just as effective and, you know, use, uh, use that drug because of safety profile primarily. And then of course, you know, the advent of the non-covalent BTK inhibitors, now these are obviously much earlier and they do have a different biological rationale because they don't rely on the CIS481 residue for, for binding. And I think that's the key thing. And certainly the xenograph models and so forth, the preclinical data, suggest that these agents are just as active in people who are effectively resistant to covalent BTK inhibitors. And I suppose the, the beauty of these agents is they would be in theory effective in people who were resistant to any of the covalent BTK inhibitors because primarily the dominant mechanism of resistance is, is um, the, the CIS481 mutation. So not allowing covalent binding to, to that BTK residue. So, um, and, and the biological rationale has matched with the clinical data so far. You know, the response rates uh, so far with the, with the studies that we've seen are, are, are really kind of sort of unprecedented in the kind of patient population that have been studied so far. And, you know, they're clearly very, clearly very active agents and, and work, seem to work equivalently well, whether you do or don't have a CIS481 mutation. And certainly the, the data presented at, at ASH last year suggests that. So... This, 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 this drug in terms of pertubrutinib and there are other non-covalent BTK inhibitors actually in even earlier development. There's a, there's a, there's a Merck drug, which is, which is being, being developed as well at the moment. 
um, they they are they are potentially again going to add to our armamentarium. Now, of course, there's all kinds of interesting questions that that throws up in terms of when you'd use each each of these different kind of drug classes, but undoubtedly they'll be extremely useful, particularly you know in the initial phases after patients have become resistant to covalent BTK inhibitors. I think so. You know, we've seen we've seen this shift. You know, going back ten years to no no targeted inhibitors, and very soon we might have um, three classes that we would routinely want to use in our clinics and i've kind of excluded pi3 kinase inhibitors from this because not that they're not attain occasionally useful drugs but they are obviously much more toxic and i think if you have um covalent btk inhibitors non-covalent um particularly with the pertubrutinib adverse event kind of profile that we've seen so far which is you know extraordinary actually it's it's early days it's a heavily pretreated group of patients and the tox data looks very good um, and then, of course, venetoclax, which we know is generally tolerated really quite well. So I think if we if, if you have those three agents very soon, you've moved into an era where even if you use them all as monotherapies with or without a CD20 antibody, for example, um, you can you can see how people will live for potentially decades without having even to touch chemotherapy, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the treatment paradigm has just totally shifted. Um, which is, you know, remarkable, really. And um, in a shift, in a revolution, um, I would imagine medicine, it never stops. So uh, what, what do you think at the moment are the most like un unresolved or unresolved questions or unmet clinical needs in your, in your opinion for CLL? Yeah, it's, great. it's a great question. So... Um... Yeah, and, and and this sort of changes all the time, doesn't it? With new agents coming along, your your unmet need shifts all the time. So if you if you'd if you'd asked me that a couple of years ago, I'd have said something different to, to today. I mean, I, I suppose the kind of clearest unmet need in terms of just routine clinical practice at the moment is the 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 patient population who have been exposed to covalent BTK inhibitors and a BCL2 inhibitor. So they're so-called double dual exposed patient population and they can either be stopping those agents because of toxicity or resistance of course most most commonly it will be resistance now of course that isn't that isn't a big population at the moment because loads of our patients are all responding well and kind of chugging along very nicely on either of those two agents um, but there will come a time where these patients cycle through these drugs and they progress through them um, and obviously I've mentioned pertubrutinib it's not it's not approved or licensed now so of course it's been accessed in clinical trials but you know until it's approved I think I think we have a space there following those two kind of classes of drugs where actually there is a real unmet need and certainly at the moment people are still considering things like allogeneic transplant potentially CAR T-cell therapy in clinical trials trying a PI3 kinase inhibitor that the the evidence for that is not particularly good actually um it's it there's actually not much data there but what the data that is there doesn't show that that response is particularly durable in that setting um so i suppose you know that's that 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 naturally is the kind of space where space where there's um room for i suppose room for new development now now most patients that won't be a massive deal because most patients are older, have comorbidities, will be very well served by BCL2, BT, covalent BTK inhibitors, potentially for many, many years. So um, you will find that, that, that a lot of patients will actually kind of derive a functional cure from that combination of those two drugs because, um, because they'll, they'll have you know, 10, 15 years remission response duration to those agents. But there are younger patients, of course, in our clinics that we all know and manage that have high risk disease features, you know, immunoglobulin gene, unmutated disease, P53 deletion mutation, etc. that um, we know will at some point progress through these agents. If you if you if you do large enough pooled analyses, you'll find that P53 unmutated disease complex carrier type always falls out um, always falls out um, as as poor prognostic features. So I suppose 
in 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 light of all those all those things that there will be a younger group of patients where i'm 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 certain will be dealing with disease resistance to those classes of drugs and then it will be a case of well okay do you use a non-covalent btk inhibitor how long do you use that for do you use it for a bridge to something else car t allogeneic transplant etc i think those will be some of the some of the questions that we'll be needing to look at in the future actually so yeah but um but i think certainly promising that, that more and more of these agents are coming along and certainly in your really high risk patients you always just need in terms of how you manage people in your clinic you always need to be confident that you've sort of got a reliable salvage regime up your up your sleeve so that so that should they progress through whatever drug it is you've got something there next and that used to be venetoclax and then hopefully now it's going to be pertubrutinib in the, in the next few years so we used to obviously think about bridging people to say allo after venetoclax if they've had you know chemo then ibrutinib then venetoclax you'd get to the point where you're like mm, we need to you know if you've got a young fit patient who's got high risk disease you think mm, i need to get this person to allo or whatever um whereas i think that same question will happen it just it, it will happen in people who are being bridged with perto initially i, I suspect um, but of course, that population will be smaller because more and more people will just have had longer emissions and they'll be older and less able to, for example, tolerate the toxicities of transplantation. And I, I suppose CAR T-cell therapy needs to develop more in CLL. We need to understand how we can improve T-cell function for, 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 for CLL patients. Um, yeah, so so that, that's how I see things at the moment. And then, of course... You know the, the big unmet need that still exists is those those patients who transform, um, and and obviously Richter transformations um, are, are sort of a big topic in itself, but but clearly we're not sorted there by any stretch of the imagination. So um, that's certainly a field that you know I I have a kind of passion for improving, and we have you know studies in Oxford kind of leading on this, but um, but I think you know it's it's a hard area. And it's difficult and it's difficult to do clinical trials in as well. So it's really hard to kind of improve on outcomes. Um, and it's, and the, it's, the per, it's a perfect, uh, you, you have a perfect outline because that would, would be my next question. And I hope I didn't dis, uh, disrupt you because my neighbor is also renovating uh, his flat and they were like popping against the wall. Sorry for that. You carry But, on, uh, can't, no, no, uh, no, I can't, can't hear anything. Uh, Uh, would you just um, point out a bit what what Richter transformation is and how at the moment we best manage it if you could say that that it's manageable? Yeah, sure. So so Richter transformations are kind of a kind of or Richter syndrome is a, is a kind of term for a change of histology, um, most commonly from always from CLL, but most commonly to a kind of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma type histology. Um, there are occasions where you can get transformation to Hodgkin, Hodgkin type um, Richter's, uh, which obviously has a very different kind of biology, different treatment, et cetera, actually different prognosis. Um, very, very rarely you can get transformations to things like lymphoblastic lymphoma and Burkitt's. Fortunately, they're extremely rare. So most commonly, we're dealing with transformation to a DLBCL type um, histology. Now, these 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 diseases are not, however, if you look at them biologically, particularly similar at all to um, kind of de novo DLBCL that we're used to looking after. And you get a lot of um, aberrations of um, of of MIC, um, Notch one, um, TP fifty three, actually, kind of the um uh, and and some of the cycling um gene regulators as well so um mostly to do with either anti-apoptosis or cell cell cycle regulation um and biologically these diseases uh, that this disease entity is is particularly challenging so i think if you look historically in in the kind of era where multi-agent chemotherapy is used um And actually, there are quite a few intensive regimes that have been trialed with this 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 disease entity. Um, the median progression-free survival typically ranges between about three to nine months, and the median overall survival between about 10 to 12 months. So that is clearly a very distinct change from the the typically indolent disease B 
behavior that you see with the underlying CLL. So Richter transformation, certainly for many of my patients still now is obviously a very feared complication of, of CLL. Um, for those who like to go away and read about all, all the bad things that can happen to them. Um, fortunately, not everybody does. Uh, How is it treated now? Um, I think we're still in an era where most people would consider um, would consider anthracycline-based therapy in combination with a CD20 antibody as a kind of sort of standard approach, not because anybody's particularly happy with that, because, you know, the median progression-free survival is still roughly around about six months or so. We did a UK study a few years ago of a combination of ofatunumab plus CHOP and then ofatunumab maintenance, and the median PFS was um, was about six months or so. That still remains the largest published prospective clinical trial ever done in Richter's and I think there were um, 43 in 43 enrolled and then 37 evaluable or something like that that you know it was not a not a big phase two study so I suppose that therein lies one of the challenges actually developing a really good evidence base in Richter's is is really difficult. Um, some of the newer agents look to have some promise um, certainly PD-1 inhibitors look to have some activity um, uh, BTK does have activity. We recently published um, some some experience with acalabrutinib. Um, there is there is activity. Overall response rate is about forty percent, but you know non durable. So I think it will be a case of actually both understanding biology, enrolling into clinical trials, um, doing associated biological studies in these patient populations, um, but also potentially combining the the tools that we have at the moment. So there are studies, for example, there's a study in Germany that's just starting to enroll of a PD-1 inhibitor plus a covalent BTK inhibitor. So, um, so um, I think tizaluzumab plus zanabrutinib, so a combination of two drugs and potentially both effective. And in the UK, we've got um, a randomized study called the STELLA trial, which is RCHOP chemotherapy versus RCHOP plus acalabrutinib. Um, so that's, that's actually the first I feel like I'm kind of kind of providing kind of like a plug for our center and, and so forth with with our Richter study. But it's the only randomized study in the world, I think, as far as I know. And it's RCHOP plus RCHOP um, acalabrutinib versus RCHOP acalabrutinib. And so I suppose that 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 will attempt to answer, you know, the, the question as to whether whether the addition of covalent BTK inhibitors can improve outcomes in these in these patient setting. I, and then just the final thing to say on Richter's is it's very outcomes very dependent on when the transformation occurs. So if you get transformation occurring, you know, in the relapsed refractory setting after prior novel agents, that's, you know, properly bad news. Median survival in that setting is only a few months based on the data that's in the, in the literature. But if you're say, you know, you do get occasions where pe people are untreated CLL and you get de novo transformation having never had treatment before. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you've not got a P53 deletion and you and you transform in that setting, actually patients do don't do anywhere near as badly, and you you can actually potentially cure some patients. So um, so I think you know a combination of when it occurs is really important, and what patients have been exposed to before is prognostically very important. Mm. Um, but it's a hard area. It's really hard to do clinical trials and we need to do our best to keep doing them and, and, and try to enroll patients. in. The, the other thing is when patients transform, they often older might have comorbidities and so forth. And actually, it's quite difficult to get people onto clinical trials um, because of the pace of the disease and, you know, and the relative rarity and the lack of trials that are generally op open in a lot of centres. It's quite hard to put people into studies. Um, so therein lie kind of, a, you know, a range of challenges, you know, in this disease. And um, maybe when, when we tend towards the end, uh, we, we live in a pandemic. And I'm sorry, I need to ask this question, um, because uh, I think particular, uh, particularly in, in CLL, um, the COVID pandemic was really, really influencing people's lives. Uh, because of the like vaccine response problem, et cetera, due to um, therapy, et cetera. But what, what would you say? How did the pandemic influence you in your work, in your life um, the most, and um, particularly also uh, CLL patients? 
Yeah, I mean, great question. I mean, there's so many ways in which it's influenced kind of all of our lives, I suppose. Uh, uh, just to pick out a couple of key things, really, I, I think we've got better at knowing how we can monitor some patients sort of at arm's length, i.e. keeping them away from hospital and perhaps understanding which disease entities it's sort of safe to manage people from a distance. Um, I think we've Get gradually gaining a better understanding of which which drugs are a problem in terms of vaccine responses and what you might need to do about those those problems. Um, I don't think that's sorted though by any by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I think we've um, I think we've certainly changed some of our treatment paradigms in, in in lymphoma or certainly become a little bit more nervous about some you know maintenance rituximab in follicular lymphoma might be a good example where you know certainly its utility is debated a little bit more in the covid era um in terms of cll what have we done differently i think you know going back to that kind of managing patients from a sort of from a distance so that they can they can safely avoid coming up to hospital and so forth We've delivered a lot of our, during the time when the peaks of the pandemic were at their worst, we've delivered a lot of treatment out into the community. So a lot of the kind of tablet-based therapies that we use, I'm thinking mostly of acalabrutinib here, we've been able to deliver a lot of these therapies out to people's homes. Because the agent has a good toxicity profile across the board, if patients are monitoring their own blood pressure and um you know, and so forth in the community, we've certainly at least intermittently been able to monitor people over the phone um, and and manage people like that. Um, obviously, there's a tension there between wanting to make sure people are okay and see them face to face, and you know you obviously lose a lot in terms of clinical assessment um, via not seeing them. But certainly, we've done a, a reasonable amount of that where where we've had to. Um, and yeah, and then I suppose there's the there's the kind of counselling element. There's that very big counselling element with patients about you know, just being able to, you know, do our best to try and um, try and get an understanding about individual people, patients risk, you know, the number of times I've got asked, can I go to my granddaughter's wedding in the last like, you know, three years, two years, it's been extraordinary, really, or equivalent type questions. And actually, they're so hard. To, I, I hate them, because they're so hard to answer. Because, of course, you want people to you know, get on with their lives and do what they want. And you've got to make some sort of reasonable, you've got to try and help people who are in that kind of position, but also also it's really hard to make very objective decisions about people's individual risk in terms of what they're doing, how they're interacting, who they're, how they're socially distancing, all this kind of stuff. But um, that's been a difficult, I found that personally very difficult, um, partly because I can't give people always the answers they want so yeah i mean there's so many things that have have um changed the way we've worked obviously we've done loads of kind of of our of our own kind of multidisciplinary team kind of tumor board type meetings via zoom and um interacted a lot more kind of i suppose electronically rather than face to face and that's quite i find it quite draining after a while but um yeah i suppose um that's where we're up to i, I think we're we're probably learning how to best manage some disease entities um, kind of from a distance. And there are diseases that are just better, better, more easy to manage in that regard. But yeah, I think there's still a little learning to take place. And um, finally, when, when we see when the field like hematology is evolving, then it's obviously also evolving in competition. So the field gets more competitive between maybe hospitals, countries, et cetera, access to treatments, for instance. Um, but in, in that regard, what advice would you give to um, someone, to a trainee who thinks about going into hematology? Maybe just key points, you alluded to it at the beginning from, from your personal perspective, but what kind of key points would you have helps trying to navigate you? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And obviously, everybody's a little bit different in terms of what they want. So I think that the, the key thing I would say is be honest with yourself um, and um, get get kind of talk to people who are kind of um, 
who are kind of sort of safe and dependable and helpful people to to talk to about what you might want to do. Um, because I think that's key. The, the worst thing you can do is not be true to, to yourself in terms of making your own decisions, because I think then you'll just end up sort of unhappy, whatever you're doing, if you're doing it to sort of please other people or what, what, what you know, whatever. And, you know, that's that's true in lots of areas of life, not just hematology. Um, and then, I've, you know, I've obviously talked a lot about CLL lympho lymph lymphoid disease today. You know, there's clearly lots of fascinating areas of hematology in, in you know, acro across the board and, you know, lots of people will find great fulfillment and interest in lots of areas. So I think there's that there's no sort of one size fits all approach. I think, you know, if you're inquisitive about kind of clinical research, then there's loads of stuff to do. Um, I suppose my, 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 if I were to give some advice about why I've chosen lymphoid disease, um, particularly, and why I have particular interests, I've sort of chosen areas where um, where I think there's a lot going on. I think there's there's lots of lots of new drugs coming along, and also some disease entities that aren't like sort of sorted, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, but that are common enough and 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 common enough to do sort of clinical studies with. So you kind of want a tension between some something that lies somewhere around that. If you're thinking about okay, well, you know, I want to do X or Y. There are also, of course, some disease entities that there's just that much more kind of sort of com competition in terms of level of just broad level of interest in the pool of physicians that are actually kind of engaged and interested in it. So um, CLL is actually kind of quite a co sort of competitive space if you look at it that way, because it's quite a common disease. You can do randomized trials and so forth. So from that point of view, um, it's it, it, you know in terms of sort of making a name for yourself if you like that's that's actually quite difficult in in kind of very competitive disease entities probably aml is something not dissimilar actually you know it's kind of kind of looked as this big disease that needs sorting that's great but of course that's going to attract lots of people to, to to sort of want want to sort it so i suppose whenever you're thinking about i don't know personal interest if you move forward in in a field you need to just kind of consider that and you also need to if you're looking to kind of develop in like say national roles or so forth in your own country if this is what you want to do then you also need to think think about sort of who's who who are those with gray hairs 10 15 years older than you that sort of are controlling the field a little bit and actually where's your opportunity um because um actually just from a practical point of view that is actually quite important um, because you can be brilliant and know everything about a disease entity and have all the ideas in the world. But if someone with gray hairs, who's 20 years old and you controls everything, then, then you're sort of stuck. <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, so that's just, a, they're just a few thoughts, but um, I think the most important one of those are just be like really honest with yourself about what you want to do and do something you end up loving um, because then it won't feel like work actually um and you'll get out of bed and you won't feel exhausted about the mm. day ahead you know and i think that's really important because you know you're going to be doing this doing this work for 30 40 years um so you know do what you enjoy basically yeah. don't do don't do stuff to please other people i think that's yeah. the other thing. <laughs> <laughs>